Well, this morning I have one text, Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, but uh, this week I've actually prepared two different sermons, and uh, quite honestly this morning I'm not exactly sure which one to preach. And so I've got a coin in my pocket, and uh, if it's uh, heads, it's sermon 1, tails, it's sermon 2, okay? Not really. There's, there's no coin in my pocket. I've only prepared one sermon. Uh, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that to you, and I promise I wouldn't do that to myself. But as God would have it, here in our text today, Acts 1, verses 12 through 26, our, our text deals with a situation in the earliest uh, uh, days of the life of the church where the disciples are faced with a difficult decision, where there are more than one viable option, more than one possible decision to make, either of which could be glorifying to God. And, and the church is faced with this uh, need to make this decision. The apostles have to make a difficult decision. And knowing the will of God in making this decision is absolutely vital to the apostles and to the future of the church, to the witness that they have. It's very likely that you too, as have I, have found yourself at some point in your life in a situation or, or in, a, in a circumstance with maybe a difficult decision to make, maybe a hard choice to, uh, to nail down. You're in need of clear direction from God as to which decision is the most wise in your life, the most God-honoring, the one that would glorify Him most. And so our text this morning will show us as we read through it, God's sovereignty, that is His all-encompassing control, in all matters of our lives, particularly his work of salvation and the means by which he accomplishes it. This text shows us that God is in control of things, even the things that we don't know, the things we don't understand, the things that we're confused about. But knowing this and observing the actions of the disciples in the text that we'll uh, look at here in just a moment, we also find here in this passage a biblical and a faithful way of discerning God's will in our lives in those times where we're not sure what his will is. Simply... That by submitting difficult decisions to the word and to the work of God, we can find and obediently follow God's sovereign will for our lives. Knowing what this text is going to tell us and how we are going to apply it, let us now turn our attention to God's word. Would you stand with me as we read together Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Again, Luke, the missionary companion to the Apostle Paul, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. Then they, that is the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers." In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. You're welcome for that right before lunch, by the way. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. 
and they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own way, or to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated this morning. This is admittedly a, a kind of, it's an interesting, at least, confusing at best, moment in the life of the disciples. What is going on here? How are we to understand what is happening, this choosing of a replacement for Judas? And why is that important? And what's this deal with casting lots? Well, up to this point, uh, we have seen uh, last week, Jesus in his final appearance to the apostles there on the mount called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, giving them their final commission as they were to go into the world to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus ascends uh, in front of their eyes and two angels, right, are there and they tell uh, the, the, the disciples, what are you still looking into heaven for? Why are you staring off? The, Jesus will come back in the same way that you saw him go. And so the, the disciples here in verse 12 go up about doing what Jesus had commanded them to do in Acts chapter 1 verse 4 which is to go back to Jerusalem and wait to wait for the Holy Spirit. The text tells us that the Mount of Olives was about a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem, which is roughly a half a mile. A Sabbath day's journey was 2,000 cubits. A cubit is about a foot and a half. You can do the rest of the math on your own. But that was as far as uh, the rabbis had told the people in a traditional sense that that's how far you could travel, you could walk on the Sabbath without it constituting as work. So that's about how far the Mount of Olives is from Jerusalem. And so the disciples travel that distance from the mount back to a room that they had rented. They returned to an upper room. Now, most uh, scholars don't believe that this is the same upper room where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, but uh, a larger upper room that the the apostles and the others who were with them, this group of 120 that uh, verse 15 mentions was there, that they had rented probably leading up to the celebration of Pentecost. Now, the Feast of Pentecost was a feast celebrated by the Jews uh, as 50 days after the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. It happened to come 50 days after the Passover. And so they were back in Jerusalem, preparing to celebrate that, and also uh, obeying Jesus' command to be in Jerusalem and to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So the whole group of disciples is there, less Judas, because Judas is dead in graphic fashion, as Luke is sure to let us know. Plus, there's some women who were with them, among them Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. There were four of them who initially did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but after his resurrection were convinced. So all of this group is all gathered together a few days before Pentecost in this room. And as verse uh, uh, 13 tells us, or excuse me, verse 14 tells us, they were all with one accord devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So all of this group gathered together, waiting for the promise that Jesus has said, and they're doing it in prayer, continually devoted in prayer. I said this text tells us something about who God is and what he does and his sovereignty. This is the point of this passage this morning. This is what this text is telling us today is that God sovereignly works to advance his plan. God sovereignly, that is, with all control, works to advance his plan. And this text shows us a few different ways that God sovereignly works out his plan and his purposes. 
First, in verses 16 through 20, we see that God sovereignly works out his plan through Judas's betrayal and even his death. Peter notes in verse 16 that all that had happened with Judas's betrayal of Jesus, right? He, he sells Jesus to the, uh, to the Jewish officials uh, and to the high guard for a price of 30 pieces of, of silver, That was all a part of God's intention, God's plan, even a fulfillment of God's word. Peter is so clear as to say that the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, these things, that Judas would betray Jesus and that he would uh, uh, die uh, as a result of suicide from that. So notice here that in these early days, there's no doubt among the people of God in the Old Testament or in the New, which the disciples seem to find themselves in a sort of in-between place, that the Scriptures were spoken by the Holy Spirit of God. Peter admits that. The Holy Spirit of God spoke through his servant David about what would happen with Judas betraying Jesus and then dying and needing to have his place, uh, needing to have his office replaced. Peter understands that the Scriptures were God's very word to man and that they spoke prophetically about events that would occur in the future, especially those events as relate to God's promise of a Messiah, who is Jesus, and all of the events surrounding his life. Judas's betrayal of Jesus and his, his gory death by suicide is a fulfillment, Peter tells the disciples, of Scripture. Peter notes the first part uh, of this fulfillment in verse 20. He says, Therefore, it is written in the book of Psalms, and here he cites Psalm 69, 25. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. Now, Psalm 69, verse 25, well, the entire psalm is a lament psalm from King David. A lament psalm is a a song of sadness, a song of crying out for help from the Lord. There in that place, David is singing about, praying about, uh, asking for God's help because of the way he's been mistreated and the way he's been betrayed and, and the way that he's been offended and, and even insulted and, and, uh, in, and, um, and injured by his enemies. Peter takes this lament of David. David, who as king of Israel was God's anointed, he takes and he applies this psalm from God's anointed to Jesus, who is the perfect and true anointed one of God. Ju- Judas's death is the fulfillment of the desolate camp of the enemy of God's anointed. The, the, just as David represents, he prefigures Jesus as the anointed one of, of Israel, the anointed one of God. So also the enemies of David prefigure the ultimate betrayer of the anointed one who is Judas. So Jesus's death and betrayal fully fulfills what happened uh, in, in a more complete way, according to God's will. You know, what happened in David's life at the hands of Judas. And then we see that Judas's replacement, the need to replace his office, is also a part of God's plan to be worked out in the days after Christ's ascension. Peter goes on in verse 20 to cite Psalm 109, verse 8, where he says, let another take his office. Now, Psalm 109 is similar in content and similar in subject to Psalm 69. They're both lament psalms. They both have the same general kind of tone, same general kind of content. A lament from David about his mistreatment by others. But because Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 are so analogous, because they're so similar, because they almost speak to one, they're almost in conversation with one another, Peter then, as a good Jew, interprets them together. And he applies the fall of the enemy of God's anointed and his replacement by another to the quintessential enemy of the Messiah in Judas. As God speaks his will in Psalm 109 for the enemy of the Messiah to be replaced, 
Judas must, him, must himself, as the quintessential enemy of the Messiah, have his office replaced also. God is sovereign even through Judas's betrayal. And Peter demonstrates that by, by, because he knows the scriptures, he can recite the scriptures to the apostles to say, God already said all of this would happen. And he already told us what to do when, when that takes place to replace him. God is sovereign through Judas's betrayal, but God's sovereign also through the disciples' witness. Verses 21 and 22. There we read, so one of the, Peter says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Since the replacement of the apostle of, of Judas, who killed himself out of uh, regret and sorrow for handing over Jesus, since the replacement of his place will have the same charge as the remaining apostles, that is Acts 1.8, right, to be a witness of Christ in the whole world, he must be a qualified witness, Peter says. A qualified witness, in this case, is someone who has observed the ministry of Jesus from its beginning with his baptism by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, all the way through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Now, from multiple gospel accounts, it's clear that there were more than just the 12 disciples who followed Jesus. Now, the, the 12 were the ones who, who followed him most closely and, and the ones whom he spent the most time, personal time with. But there were others that, that spent that entire period following Jesus as well. But among those who fit the qualifications that Peter lays out are only two. There are only two that were witnesses to all of Jesus' earthly ministry, starting with his baptism, ending with his ascension. They, they are uh, Joseph, who's also called Barsabbas, who's also called Justice, who's like the king of the nicknames, um, and Matthias, who just has one name. So don't miss here, though, in all of this, that God calls and uses at the inception, at the, the earliest days of the church, God uses and calls credible, believable, reliable, and trusted witnesses to the entire earthly ministry of Jesus, to his death, to his resurrection, and to his ascension. Right? God doesn't call people who have no clues to what's going on to be his witnesses, but he's called people who have seen it with their own eyes, who can attest to these things that have happened. God's perfect will and his perfect saving work, which are completed by Christ, are attested to and affirmed by trustworthy witnesses who can testify confidently and correctly to God's faithful and sovereign work to save sinners by their faith in Jesus. God calls people who are to be believed and who are believable to be his witnesses of the resurrection and the ascension in the world. And Peter recognizes that. And Peter says, look, we've got to, in replacing Judas, and, and according to God's will, we have to replace him with someone who's, who is a qualified witness, who is believable. One who we know God has already chosen. God is sovereign through Judas's betrayal. He's, he's sovereign in his work even in the witness of the disciples and whom he chooses there. And, and literally and specifically, we see that God is sovereign through the process of choosing his apostles. The Lord is sovereign in choosing his apostles. In verse 13, we read this. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And we get this whole list of the, the, the apostles who are there, minus Judas. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, uh, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. There were two Judases among the group. 
Here in verse 13, the group of the 12 are named specifically. They're recorded also in Luke's gospel uh, as those who were chosen specifically and intentionally by Jesus to be his disciples, to be the ones that he would teach and invest in uh, and, and who would continue his ministry after his death and resurrection. These 12, even Judas, were the, Judas the betrayer, were not a random group selected on a whim, but rather to a man, these were those whom Jesus sovereignly intended to be his disciples. Jesus wasn't guessing. Jesus wasn't choosing people at random. He goes to, and we see this even in the various disciple call accounts, he goes to specific men and says, follow me. It's not a blanket call to, to his initial disciples. He's just, just like, you know, gather a bunch of people around. It's like, hey, whoever's uh, interested, come along. I'm going to go this way and y'all come with me. No, Jesus intentionally, on purpose, chooses these people. So when we come to the selection of a replacement for Judas here in Acts chapter 1, we should not assume that somehow Jesus is not now sovereignly choosing even this apostle, even this disciple. Peter doesn't assume that, but he does know what the Lord would require of such a one in being a qualified witness. So now, with two qualified candidates to serve as credible witnesses to the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the disciples find themselves at an impasse. We've got two perfectly good choices. One guy who's got two nicknames and a real name, and then this other dude. Both of them have been with us the whole time. Both of them are eyewitnesses to everything that Jesus did. They're both credible, they're trustworthy, we know them. But we don't know which, which one. There's only one office to fill, and there's two guys who could fill it. So what do they do? They cast lots. That's weird for Christians to hear. Okay, right. Let's just, we don't do that. We don't cast lots anymore. So what's going on? Is this a, is this a bad thing? Is this a wrong thing that the disciples are doing? Why are they casting lots? And what do we do to, to make sense of this? Well, as we scan through the old Testament, we find there that the practice of casting lots was actually used often among the people of Israel and even given to Israel by God. It's first given specifically to the priest in Exodus, uh, the priests in Exodus 28 verse 30. The priests who serve in the tabernacle and later the temple would carry around with them in a little leather pouch that they hung around their neck, two little stones called the Urim and the Thummim. And if there was a question about what God's will was in a certain situation or, or which decision to make, uh, the uh, the priest would assign to one lot a certain value or a certain decision and to the other lot uh, a, a different uh, value or a different decision. They'd put those into the pouch, throw them out onto the ground, and, uh, and whichever one comes out first was the will of the Lord. It's the, the decision that they would make. Casting lots like this was not just done by the priest. It was also done by other people in the course of Israel to divide up land, uh, to, to apportion you know, spoils of war and things like that. It was used commonly but, uh, among the people of Israel. But in every instance, the understanding was that this was not just mere chance. This was not just dumb luck when we cast lots. But it is the will of God being revealed to us as people. So Proverbs uh, chapter 16 verse 33 says this. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Nothing is left to chance with God. Everything that he intends will be done. And so even in the practice of casting lots among the, the people of Israel in the Old Testament and the disciples here in Acts chapter 1, it is the Lord's will that is being revealed, not dumb luck or pure chance. And the disciples recognize this, don't they? Because in verses 24 and in 25, they pray this as they are about to cast lots. They say, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. So show which one of these two you have chosen. 
to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from Judas, who turned aside to go to his own place. God is in charge of the lots. He controls the casting of the lots. The disciples know this. They have a decision that they need the Lord's help in making. And so they pray to the Lord saying, God, you know the results already. So we're giving you the results even before we ask the question. Friends, the sovereignty of God over all things extends even to the casting of lots in the old covenant period in the Old Testament. And since Peter and the disciples are existing here in Acts 1, 22, verse 20, uh, Acts 1, verses 12 through 26, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, they're existing in this transitional period where the new covenant has, has been purchased and, and it's been enacted in Jesus' blood, but the sign of that covenant, the coming of the Holy Spirit, has not yet happened. So they're kind of in this in-between place where an old covenant means of knowing the will of God is still acceptable. Know this, what the disciples do here in Acts chapter 1 is not wrong, it's not evil, it's not disobedient. It is worth noting that the casting of lots is, however, not noted anywhere else in the rest of Scripture or the history of the church that we have uh, in the Bible after this point. This is the last instance of this, particularly because in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, the Spirit of God himself, who indwells the apostles and every believer after that point to help us to make those decisions when we have uh, difficult decisions to make. So the disciples pray, they give the decision to the Lord, they cast the lots, and the lot falls to Matthias, and he is then numbered among the twelve, which then completes the core of witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus began the group with twelve. The disciples, the apostles know he must have done that for a reason. That's why we're replacing Judas. And they do it with a qualified witness of God's choosing. The point of this passage is that God sovereignly works all things for his will to to work out his plan of salvation. And as we apply this to our lives, the application here is really just more one of knowledge, one of understanding who God is and how he works. Friends, God is sovereign in all things, especially, especially related to his plan of redemption, to saving sinners from their sin By faith in his son Jesus. And God ensures that his sovereign will is always done. He ensures it here in the life of the disciples. He ensured it even by by having Judas, the betrayer, counted among the apostles. That was part of God's plan. Sometimes God God does things that we don't understand. Sometimes things happen in our life that appear evil. But in those moments, we, we need to remind ourselves that even when bad things seem to happen in our life, that God is using those things for his glory and for our good. We can remind ourselves of Genesis chapter 50. There were Joseph, right, uh, has been sold into slavery in, uh, in Egypt, and he, he ends up rising in the ranks, the second in power of all of Egypt. His brothers who sold him into slavery during a famine, they come back. They find out that Joseph is in this place of power, and they think that he's going to like enact all of his revenge at that point. And Joseph says, says to his brothers, don't be afraid, don't fear me, because what you intended for evil, God intended for good. God is sovereign in all things, even the hard things, even the difficult things, even the confusing situations of our life, even the things that seem like evil in our lives. God is using those things to work his will. Friends, you can trust God that he'll do what is good, that he'll do what is right, even in confusing situations. That's the point of this passage. But here's a couple of, here are a couple of pointers from this passage. Here's some application for our lives, some wisdom for finding and following God's will that we can glean from this passage this morning. 
So let's say that you find yourself in a difficult situation, a, a hard decision that you have to make. You're confused. You don't, there, there are several viable options, and you're not sure which path to take, which direction to go. How, how do you find out what God's will is for your life, and how do you obediently follow what God is calling you to do? Well, you, like the disciples, as we see in verses 12 through 14, you begin that process with devoted prayer. Devoted prayer. Continually asking God for his help, for his guidance, for his direction there. Notice here that the, the disciples in verses 12 through 14, we don't, we don't have the exact text of what they, the exact words that they were praying at that time, but we do know that Jesus commanded them to go back to Jerusalem and to wait for the Holy Spirit. Notice that, that they are not here praying for, and we'll even see this in the rest of Acts and other places where the disciples pray. They're not praying for God to give them stuff. Like, God, if you'll just give me this, then I'll know. If you'll just give me this thing, then I'll, if you'll just take care of this problem for me, God. No, what they're doing, they're praying with an attitude of waiting. They're praying with a heart that is saying, God, help me here in this situation. Not God, give me this or give me that, but God, help me to know your will. Help me to make wise decisions. Help me to wait on you to move. So as we search for wisdom for finding God, uh, finding and following God's will in our life, begin that process with devoted prayer. There are a lot of times where people will um, uh, mention maybe a thing in their life to me that, uh, that seems like they would need prayer about a difficult situation. And I am just as guilty as many others saying, you know what, I'll be praying for you. How often do I actually pray about those things? Well, hopefully more often than not, but right. But I've been guilty of times of saying, hey, I'll pray about that. Or I've been praying about this. Or I'll ask God about that for you. But I don't actually do it. Do we ever do that? We just tell people or even tell ourselves, I'm going to pray about this, but we don't. How, how critical, how important it is. And, and we see this displayed in the lives of the disciples here early on in their, in their ministry after Christ's ascension. The importance of devoting things to God in prayer. And not asking him for stuff, but asking him for help, asking him for patience, a- asking him to do what he will in his own timing. Begin that process with devoted prayer. But then proceed in that process of making that decision in Scripture, which is God's revealed will. Notice that Peter very quickly turns his attention to God's word, which he says was spoken by the Holy Spirit, written by Holy Spirit inspired and Holy Spirit directed individuals, specifically David in the Psalms. Peter and the other uh, disciples present there understand implicitly that God has already clearly spoken and clearly revealed all of his intentions for salvation and for godly living in this uh, world by his word. God's already spoken to many of the needs and many of the decisions that you may have and you may need to face. His word, scripture, these 66 books, this portable library of God's spoken and written word to us is his revealed will that they turn to for direction in the situation. So friend, as you begin this process of making a difficult decision by devoting yourself to God in prayer and asking for his help and patience and wisdom, be, uh, proceed in scripture, proceed in his revealed will first by submitting to its authority, submitting to its authority to say that scripture, to say that the Bible is the word of God is to affirm that because it is the all powerful and all knowing God's word, that it carries all of his authority with it. If the God who's the supreme God and creator of the universe has spoken this word, then his word is supreme. His word is authoritative. And because it is God's word, it not only has the last word in our lives and in difficult decisions and situations, but it should have the first word as well. 
So do not go to God's word for help in decision making without first committing to allow the word of God to shape your thinking and not your thinking to shape the word of God. Come to God's word without agenda. Come to it without, as best you can without pretext or presupposition. Approach it with humility and readiness to obey whatever it says to you. Submit to its authority. But then secondly, as you proceed in Scripture, know what Scripture commands. Know what Scripture has already called you to do. Know what God has already clearly said and spoken. Peter clearly has a solid knowledge of not just one or two Psalms of David, but the entire library of the Psalms in the Old Testament. He readily just rattles off two of them like it's no big deal. Acts chapter 2, also we'll see later when Peter preaches his first uh, Christian sermon in the history of the world, is a great example also, again, of Peter's knowledge of the Old Testament and God's work through the history of Israel. We need to know what God's word commands. Friends, if the only time you open your Bible are in times of crisis, then there is little chance of you ever really having a grasp of what God has communicated about himself in the whole of it. If you're approaching God's word, as, as we've said before, a, a mosaic of cookie, a uh, fortune cookie sort of fortunes, right? You, you will readily and regularly be disappointed by what you do not know about God or what you do. You cannot decipher about what God would have you do in a certain situation. God doesn't speak in tweets. He speaks in more than 140 characters. He's spoken in 66 books which have in themselves integrity among themselves, right? Not, these aren't just random collections of God's thoughts or thoughts about God. These are things that God has, has in condescending to, uh, to, to our language and the way we think about things, has logically described himself. He has spoken to us clearly, but you can't know what God commands if you only ever go to the Bible in times of crisis looking for that one verse that's going to flip the switch and change your life forever. Knowing what God commands in his word takes time. You have to intentionally schedule extended periods of time devoted to reading and learning from God's word. You need help to develop skills that help you to find the unchanging meaning of God's word. To see how any one text relates to the whole of what God is doing from the moment of creation to the fall of man in his sin through his work to provide salvation in Jesus and up until the day when God will judge all people when Christ returns. God's word is, is we interpret God's word all the time. We take what it says and we try to understand it. That's the process of interpretation. But let me say this also at the same time. God's word is not open to interpretation. When God spoke it and when it was written, it meant one thing. It still means the same thing. So we need to develop those skills that, that, uh, that, that we can have to best understand what God meant most clearly. Some passages are easier to understand immediately than others. Some take time and much prayer and much patience and much grace with one another as we talk about those things. We interpret God's word all the time, and it's good to develop skills to help us interpret it rightly. But God's word is not open to interpretation. It won't mean anything today that it didn't mean yesterday. And it won't mean something new tomorrow that it didn't mean today. And in order to do that, you've got to spend time in his word. 
And so I'd commend to you again, if you haven't started this year, uh, start working to, to read through extended portions of the Bible this year. We have uh, printed for you, you can find them on the, the welcome desk uh, right by the front doors, some schedules for daily Bible reading throughout 2018, where you, you will read five days a week, you get two days during the week to catch up. But over the course of the year, you'll have read through the entire Bible this year if you follow that uh, program, you follow that schedule. I'm doing that this year, and I pray and I uh, would hope that you guys would do the same. So as you go to God's word and in order to make these difficult decisions, you first, you submit to its authority. Secondly, you know what it commands. That is, you spend time in it and you spend time trying to understand it. And then third of all, as we proceed in God's word, we be obedient, be obedient. There are some things in God's word and some answers to our questions that are undeniably clear. God tells us to avoid certain specific sins. We know that the gospel must be proclaimed. There's no question about that. God has told us that nothing but repentance of sin and faith in Jesus saves us from God's deserved punishment for our sin. There's no question about that in his word. We know that Christian husbands must love their wives like Christ loved the church. We know that Christian wives must respect and follow the leadership of their husbands. God's word is clear on those things. There are some things in God's word that we don't often need to spend much time in prayer about whether to obey those things or not. There are some things that are very clear that we don't need to say, ah, you know, God, I don't think I'm going to pray on that for a minute. There are many things in God's word we just need to be obedient to. And there are difficult decisions and circumstances in our lives that that God is calling us to make a decision. That we have to make a decision that will glorify God and edify uh, ourselves and the body of Christ in making those decisions. And very often they are about subjects and about topics that God has already clearly spoken. And when that happens, as we submit ourselves to the authority of God's word, when we come to know and understand what it commands, we need to be obedient to the clearly revealed word of God. Knowing that when it comes to other issues and other difficult decisions, God will never call us to act contrary to what he already has revealed in his will. If you know what God has already said clearly in his word about a particular issue in your life, just be obedient. Obey the first time. Delayed obedience is disobedience. But what about the times where God's revealed will doesn't speak specifically to a particular situation in our lives? We, we get to a, a, a situation or a question that, that, is, that God doesn't speak to directly or explicitly in his word. Well, in those instances, as we seek to find and follow his sovereign will for our lives, you then trust God's guidance and act for his glory. So you've begun in devoted prayer, you've proceeded in scripture, and then you conclude the process by trusting God's guidance and acting for his glory. So when faced with a a void in in leadership, the disciples here in Acts chapter 1 follow God's word. They know that they must have a replacement for Judas. They even know what sort of qualifications this person should have. And they possess two qualified candidates. But they're lacking in knowledge in whom they ought to appoint. You may find yourself in a similar sort of situation. Do Do I apply for this job or do I apply for that job? Do I pursue this relationship with this person further or do I need to cut it off for my own good and the glory of God? Do I pursue this major as I uh, uh, continue on in, in college or this master's degree or this doctorate degree? Or do I pursue something else entirely? Do I buy this particular vehicle or home at this time? Do I spend, is it wise for me to spend my money this way? 
Should I enter the mission field or should I take a a particular ministry that that God may be calling to? What do I do? Like I know that generally God has placed this burden, this decision in my life, but I don't know what to do. I don't know what is wisest. As you seek to trust God's guidance and act for his glory in difficult situations like these, when you come up against a situation like this, first of all, gather all of the knowable information. Gather all the things that you can know about the choices that you have in front of you. If it's a, uh, uh, relating to a job, I mean, you might just need to know like the pay package and how much vacation they allow. And, you know, you might need to know what holidays during the year. I mean, get all the information you possibly can gather. And then when you have all the information that you can have, ask yourself two questions. You may want to write these down. First question, what option is most glorifying to God and consistent with what he has clearly revealed in scripture? I'll say that again. What option, which of my choices, those in front of me, is most glorifying to God and most consistent with what he has clearly revealed in Scripture? Then ask yourself the second question. Which decision, which action will lead to more opportunity for advancing the gospel? Which decision, which action will lead to more opportunity for advancing the gospel? These don't seem, may not seem, like very wise in the eyes of the world sort of questions to ask as you try to make difficult decisions. But I promise you, these are wise and godly questions to ask. So, for instance, we ask these two questions of of some of the examples we had before. For instance, to, to choose this job or that job. We ask the question, what option is most glorifying to God and consistent with what he's clearly revealed in Scripture? Well, maybe one job would require you to uh, work on Sundays, the day that in your life you have devoted to, to worship uh, with the people of God. And the other job would not require you to do that. Well, it seems easy so that you can glorify God best by continuing your weekly wor- work schedule or your weekly worship schedule by working at the job that doesn't require you to work on Sundays. It's a fairly easy question to answer. What about a relationship with, another, with, with pursuing a relationship with a person? Say, a young man, you're dating a young woman. Young woman, you're, you're dating a young man. You've reached that point in the relationship. You've had the DTR, right, the define the relationship conversation. Like, what is this? Where is this going? And you're faced with a decision. Do I pursue this further? Because if we go further, right, this might, that might lead you know, toward marriage. And that's a pretty serious commitment, I'm told. Um, and, and is God calling me to that or not? Ask yourself that question. What, what is most glorifying to God in this situation? Maybe, friends, in the context of the relationship you're in, there are some actions, there are some patterns of behavior with you and this other person that are not godly and not glorifying to God. And maybe for the glory of God and the good of your own soul and for hers or for his, you need to break that relationship off. What about do I pursue this, this career or this, this major in college? Which is more glorifying to God? That's a hard question for me to ask. I would have to sit down with you and talk about uh, those things. But ask yourself that question. Which among these is most glorifying? What about to buy a particular vehicle or a home? Right? We live in a, in a nation, even in a city, where having a car is almost a necessity. Right? So we have to make those decisions all the time. Should I buy this car or this car? Do I buy a new car or a used car? Do I buy, you know, foreign or domestic? Um, we won't even talk about those things, right? right? You gather all the information possible. You ask yourself the question, what's most glorifying to God? And in answering that question, whether it's about a car or a home, you might want to think about, am I, am I glorifying God best with how I use my money here? 
Could I make a different situation? Maybe uh, make a different decision. Maybe buy a smaller house or buy a different car or an older car that's still reliable so that I can, so that more of my money is freed up and not tied to a mortgage or a car loan so I can give more generously to the work of, of God in the church and, and on the mission field. What about entering what about entering the mission field? Maybe God's called you to ministry and you're trying to ferret out which direction God has called you. I was there in a place in my life one time. I thought God was calling me on the mission field at one point. I thought that was a viable option for me. In situations like that, you have to look at all of the, the, the possible information there and ask which one of these is most glorifying to God in my life. Has he gifted me for this? Has he really called me to this? Do I have a clear conviction from God about this thing or that? Now, let me say this. If God's called you to ministry, uh, to be on the mission field or to, to, to be a pastor of a church, neither of which is necessarily more or less glorifying to God in a general sense, but in your own life, you will know as you devote those things to prayer, which God is leading you to. What about the second question? Which decision or action will lead to more gospel op- or more opportunity for advancing the gospel? This is an important question because this is the imperative of the church and of every Christian that has ever existed in the history of the world. To go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to, to obey everything that Christ has commanded us. There's nothing more important in our lives than that. So every decision that we make, whether it's about a relationship or how we spend our money, or do I move to this city or to that city, every decision needs to be submitted to the question, does this help me? Does this give me more opportunity to share the gospel with people that I must share the gospel with? As we seek to move forward in obedience and finding God's will and understanding what he has called us to do, we need to begin in devoted prayer, giving that entire process to God, asking for his help to make decisions that we in our own power cannot make. We need to uh, proceed in that process by giving over to God's word, knowing what he has commanded, knowing what he's clearly said to do and things not to do, to allow that to, uh, to eliminate certain options in our life. And then... We need to, in those moments where we still have questions, trust God's guidance and act for his glory. Now, the disciples trusted God's guidance through the casting of lots. But know, friends, that you now today, you who trust in Christ, have something that the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, did not yet have. You have the very spirit of God, the third person of the triune God living in you to convict you of sin, to teach you uh, things that you ought to know about Christ, to, to help you to grow in righteousness and holiness and godliness. You have God himself in you to guide your decision making. So you don't need to flip a coin. You don't need to roll the dice. You need to listen to God, the Holy Spirit in you, speaking to you as you submit yourself to prayer and to the leadership, to the guidance that is in his word. Friends, you can know this, that God's concealed will for your life, that the the things that he desires for you to to know or to do, that you don't know clearly yet what to do, his concealed will for your life will always be, and, and never will be contrary to these things. It will always be for his greatest glory and for the advancement of the gospel. It will always be for his greatest glory in the advancement of the good news that Jesus Christ, the son of God, took on flesh, lived a life without sin, died on the cross in the place of sinners, was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven so that we who trust in him might be made right with God, be justified with God, our father and creator. And in trusting in him, we know that we have the promise of his Holy Spirit living in us to help us to make these decisions. The application of this to our lives today is this, that God's will is is not necessarily always mysterious. His will is knowable. 
God's will is knowable. His purposes are always redemptive and glorious. And God's people are called to seek his will and to obey it, to fulfill his purposes. Friend, do you have a question today? Do you have a situation today, a decision to make that you don't know which one to do? I I would implore you to do this. I would encourage you to do this. Devote yourself and devote the process now to prayer. Humbly asking God to help you in this situation. Spend time in his word. And not just looking for specific passages that might relate to the situation that you're in. But spend time in his word reading broad sections of it. Because in it you may find him speaking wisdom into your life through his word. In ways that you wouldn't have found if you were just looking through the the index, the concordance in the back of your Bible. And then, when you've gathered as much information as you can, knowing you've submitted it all to God, to his work through prayer and to the Holy Spirit's guidance in your life, trust God's guidance in the decision you feel him uh, most clearly calling you to make and act for his glory. The life we live, the choices we make, not about making ourselves great. It's not about building a kingdom for ourselves or, or a reputation for us. The life that we live and the decisions that we make, even in situations where we don't know what to do, all of it is ultimately must be for the glory of God and for the spread of the gospel in the world. Know today, friends, there's wisdom for knowing God's will, for finding it and for following it faithfully. If you'll do what the disciples model for us here in Acts chapter 1. Let's pray this morning.